Have you ever wondered if you're weird for reaching for the phone to call your dead parents? Did you ever get mad at one of them for showing up in one of your dreams? And did you wake up crying? There's a movie for that. Jane Seymour and Christopher Reeve are trapped in love somewhere in time. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Call Back Yesterday. My name's John Raby. This is a podcast that uses the movie Somewhere in Time, which turned 40 this year, to talk about all the big, important stuff. Now, back when Somewhere in Time came out in 1980, it was fashionable to trash the movie. George Takei, take it away. Leonard Maltin. Stilted dialogue. Corny situations. Pretty scenery. Roger Ebert. The movie surrounds its love story with such boring mumbo-jumbo about time travel that we finally just don't care. Vincent Camby. Somewhere in time does for time travel what the Hindenburg did for dirigibles. And who knows what my guest would have said if he was a film reviewer back in 1980, but he's not. He's a modern man, and he likes Somewhere in Time. Somewhere in time, really, and one of the reasons it's endured is that it does have the courage of its absurd convictions. Oh, that beautiful voice. His name is Justin Chang. You know the voice from Fresh Air, because he's their film critic, and he's film critic for the Los Angeles Times. Justin Chang, why don't you tell people where we are? We're at a lovely park in Pasadena. How far away are we from each other? <laughs> we are, I'll say, nine feet? Nine or ten feet? feet. Yeah. yeah. That's why God made mic cords. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and it's kind of a nice day, and it's nice to see people. Nice to see you. It's good to see you, too. Yeah. Yes. I've been doing a lot of these by, like, Zoom and voice memos, and it just... Isn't the same. I know. Yeah. And uh, I think especially talking about Somewhere in Time, people are important to that movie. They are, and so so is the outdoors, too. So anyway, welcome to the podcast. It's called Call Back Yesterday, based on the Shakespearean quote from Richard II, Oh, call back yesterday, bid time return, and I would have had a whole army for you, but they all thought you're dead, and so they've gone off to fight the Prussians or whatever it was. Um, Bid time return being the original title of Richard Matheson's book, which then was turned into Somewhere in Time, Mm -hmm. a much better title. And I think that before there was a name check of Somewhere in Time in the last Avengers movie. Mm-hmm. Star Trek, Terminator, Time Cop, Time After Time, Quantum Leap, Wrinkle in Time, Somewhere in Time. You were probably the last person in any major media outlet to write about Somewhere in Time. And that was, uh, <laughs> that was 2013, yeah. a piece in Variety, reviewing the movie About Time. It was called About Time and the Pleasures of the Time Travel Romance. And in there, you broke with uh, critical tradition by saying that Somewhere in Time didn't suck it doesn't suck i don't know if that means it's good um but there's something about it that's kind of great and the premise of it was that i'm kind of a sucker for these movies these movies being movies that mix romantic drama with time travel about time the time traveler's wife uh the lake house and all of these movies are absurd and that's what I love about them. These movies tend not to be well-reviewed when they first appear on the scene. Somewhere in Time certainly was not. And I don't know if that's really changed, but it it might be worth saying how I first saw this movie. Because I wouldn't have, you know, I 
wouldn't have stumbled on it necessarily myself, but we actually watched this in a high school philosophy class. My high school philosophy class, Theory of Knowledge was what it was called. Kind of a strange, uh, strange circumstances, but we were watching a lot of movies about uh, love, romantic love, and the obsessive quality of love and how that sometimes you know, stands in contrast with our circumstances or how, how, how impossible that kind of love is to attain or rather to sustain, perhaps. And so we watched things like The Bridges of Madison County, for example, you know, a more kind of straightforward, prosaic kind of film, and Somewhere in Time. And we said, oh, this is perfect. And so I watched it, and it just kind of stayed with me because it's exactly about that, sort of the impossibility of love and the way that it can transcend traditional barriers of time and space, which is, of course, something that the movies are uniquely able to uh, explore. How old were you? I must have been uh, 17, 16, 17. 16, yeah. 17. Had, yeah. had you had a girlfriend or anything? No. Like, had you had any no. sort of... Uh, just to, to back up, I was 13 when I saw it, and I thought it was malarkey. Yeah. <laughs> now I love the movie. I'm 54. I have been in love. I have lost love. Parents sure. have died. All these things have happened to me that that uh, qualify you for actually enjoying a highly <laughs> romantic movie. But very short story. I met a girl at a party once uh, 25 years ago or so. I had just seen Last Tango in Paris. I'm awfully sorry to intrude, but I was so struck with your beauty that I thought perhaps I could offer you a glass of champagne. Uh-huh. And I'd been divorced and came out, and my parents had died, and people had died of cancer, etc., etc. My whole life was turmoil at that point, and I was weeping throughout the movie. She was 22. She had all 10 grandparents or whatever, had never experienced any, any loss in her life. She thought it was just the dumbest movie ever, and the music was too loud. And, the, and I'm like, it was beautiful. <laughs> it was dumb. That's an interesting question about how much life experience prepares you to enjoy movies or appreciate them, especially things that are about weighty subjects like the passage of time, like love and loss and all that. I guess I was, you know, you know, already I was sort of, you know, I wouldn't say like cinematically precocious, but definitely cinematically curious. So I was interested in watching quote unquote grown up movies. And it's funny, I wouldn't dispute what you said about the movie being malarkey. I, I think that's true. And, and I, I, I still think that's true. But Malarkey can be great, but malarkey M- movies are malarkey. It's not, it's yeah. ridiculous, as you point out in your in your variety piece. Uh, plausibility is overrated. Yeah. That's what I love about this genre or subgenre. It may be why I am predisposed to liking them, or maybe a little kind to them, as some of my colleagues have pointed out to me, because there's something kind of. And I wrote this in the piece, but it was basically this idea that a lot of romantic dramas or romantic comedies, they will bend over backwards to engineer that third act contrivance to keep two people apart who you know are destined to be together. There's a certain suspension of disbelief that is required to believe that, you know, and I I think I invoked the example of, you know, the car accident that keeps uh, Deborah Carr and Cary Grant from making their fateful Empire State Building date in in Affair to Remember which was then, of course, memorialized in Sleepless in Seattle, which keeps the two apart from most, like, 90% of the movie. And I, I just sort of love the unabashedness of movies like Somewhere in Time, where those barriers are not based on, like, personality. It's not like, I can't believe you were a terrible person all along, and you're actually, I thought you were a good person. The barriers are completely metaphysical. They're yeah. supernatural. I, I sort of love that. It forces you to surrender completely to the absurdity of it, which is one of the things I love about movies, is that it's it often is 
And don't get me wrong, I, I love realism in movies. I, I love neorealism. I love, um, you know... Battle of Algiers uh, the, is great. Yeah, absolutely. Just not so, it's not a great date movie. <laughs> Battle of Algiers and Somewhere in Time. Great double bill. Um, but, so there's something... I, I think what I admire is the the willingness of these movies to look ridiculous, and they often are. And I think that's, a, you know, and, and of course this is why they invite a lot of critical scorn. You know, they are, because it's it's very fashionable, it's very, it's very fun to sort of look down your nose at them. But I think that Somewhere in Time really, and one of the reasons it's endured is that it does have the courage of its absurd convictions. And, you know, yeah, and watching it again, I was like, oh, God, you know, I mean, the close-ups of Jane Seymour's face and the, the lone tear, you know, you know, streaking down her face, you know, varies. And I don't say this pejoratively. It's, it's sort of, it is sort of daytime soap opera kind of material. And I say that as someone who quite enjoys daytime soap operas. So it's like, and does not look down on them. So I think, yeah, it's, um, yeah, again, malarkey. Malarkey has its pleasures. Malarkey can be essential. Both uh, Geno and uh, Stephen Simon, the producer, said that it's about having this big obstacle that, that the lovers have to overcome. Yeah, getting over an argument is not an obstacle. They even removed cancer from the, <laughs> the, the screenplay, which, uh, or, or, you know, um, Richard Collier had some sort of terminal illness in, in the Richard Matheson book. Um, so they even removed illness from it. You just have to believe and then follow what happens. And I, th- I think also, um, you know, that third act thing you're talking about, it makes the movie fast. It's a short movie compared to so many of these others where they add all these extra elements. This one lets you just focus on the story. It's a very simple story. Yeah. Um, you know, when you think of time travel movies, you often think about mind-bending intricacies and and there are a few of them here but it's all very intuitive uh you know the 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 lovely you know the points of intersection between when he realizes that you know oh the the name the name signed in the grand hotel ledger and and little 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 payoffs like that are very fun i was there i was there well and that means that he really did time travel exactly that's right it's very pared down in a way and they have sort of paired away all those complications and now and because they take away the cancer element he of course dies almost purely of a broken heart i'm talking with justin chang right now uh about somewhere in time the movie came out in 1980 what was the critical zeitgeist at that time what were critics talking about you know this was right in the middle of star wars you know the original star wars had come out and i think the empire strikes back came out either was it 1980 or in 81 i can't even remember the Hollywood blockbusters are sort of in their ascendancy. Geno had just directed Jaws 2. And Alien had just come out the year before. Um, interestingly enough, a movie that kept coming to mind as I was watching Somewhere in Time is The Shining, which uh, also came out in 1980 and is also about a hotel yeah. and where, with an overpowering sense of place that feels iconic now and is also about how a sense of place, you know, the... the Movies in which hotels are very much the co-stars or the second or the you know the lead the co-leads as it were. It's, I guess what the, I'm really asking too yeah. is it was it fashionable to dump on somewhere in I time? I think so. I mean, and which is not to say that it was you know that the criticism was disingenuous or you know I, right. I, and I, I and I don't think those critics you know the ones who were still alive would necessarily retract their reviews. And this movie was you know this stately romantic drama with you know 
Christopher Reeve and Jane Seymour and Christopher Plummer. And people just dismissed it as sort of, you know, middle-brow hokum. So I think it was fashionable to dump on it. But I also think there's a reason why that view has maybe changed a little bit and why some audiences have, you know, make these annual pilgrimages to to Mackinac Island. You know, because this is a movie that's about obsession. And I think it creates, it incarnates its own obsession among those who love the movie. Yep. So it's very fitting that people go back and that people have such an attachment to this place. Talking with Stephen Simon, the, the producer of the movie, he said that the original plan was to... Re- and by the way, it, was a, it, was, it did not do Bafo box office. No. The critics didn't like it and it didn't do Bafo box office. But, but Stephen said that uh, the original plan was to just kind of leak it out, to put it in some small theater, or, or do a small release and let word of mouth build up. But what happened was they did two previews, like in Toronto and Minneapolis or something. And, and Stephen says the previews were rapturous. The, the crowds loved it, and the Universal executives were there. And they said, dude, this is huge. You know, we're going to have another, another blockbuster, and so we're going to do it big. And so they were well-intentioned, but they screwed up. Does that make sense to you? I mean, that kind of platform release, I guess you would, would be the equivalent now, does happen still. Uh, I'm, I'm talking pre-COVID. Well, platform release means a, a means bit at a time. Start out, yeah, you start out and usually and you try to build word of mouth. You try to build word of mouth. Um, it's not a movie that you would open wide. And the whole wide release strategy, of course, had just been sort of introduced five years earlier with mm. Jaws. And that was, of course, a no-brainer strategy to use for your big critic-proof surefire hits like Star Wars, like Jaws. But something a smaller film, I guess, like Somewhere in Time, you know, your prestige movies, your 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 mid-budget dramas, which do not have necessarily as bankable elements, you would then nowadays, and this is all pre-COVID, um, tendency is for these smaller movies to open in just one or two markets, you know, like Los Angeles, New York, usually, you know, bi-coastal. And then... Um, and then you build up good reviews, you build up good word of mouth, and then you slowly start to, you know, introduce the movie into other theaters, and then gradually you can work up to a wider release. And this is, you know, still a pretty successful strategy. So, but, um, but yeah, I was reading a little bit about how Somewhere in Time just failed to take off, despite seeming like a good candidate for that. And that's interesting to think about how it went over with those preview audiences. Yeah. I mean, I can understand them them loving it, but the reviews do play a part. But you know? wouldn't its uh, success in the future back up that argument <laughs> that, that the way it did spread and got popular, albeit on TV, yeah. was people seeing it, people liking it, people telling their friends about it, joining, joining fan clubs and stuff. That's an interesting... I mean, this gets into the whole age-old argument of, you know, art versus commerce or whether it's the divide between critics and audiences and how relevant are we. And I sort of, you know, I sometimes wonder, have we ever been relevant? Probably not. For me, it's like sometimes we are in touch with them because that is our role to respond to what is actually striking a chord within the culture. But a lot of our time, our job is to be out of touch, you know, and is to tell the public, you know, not that we know more than you, but... Actually, we do know more than you <laughs> about certain things that you that do not have the you know the the advertising budgets, the marketing yeah. budgets to to get in front of your eyeballs. And so, but that is a you know that is a an argument that every critic I can tell you writing about the movies is sort of having with themselves and with the audience every day. You know, and and a movie like Somewhere in Time, 
I don't know if I, I I do stick to I don't know if I think it's a great or a good movie, but it's a movie that I have a great affection for, and maybe that distinction matters less. It doesn't even matter that much in the end, but um, I think it also it's funny to think about what I was picking up on something you were saying how a movie that sort of grows and finds its audience. It is sort of it almost feels metaphorically tied to the movie, which is about something that you know this grand spark that ignites when it first comes out and then is extinguished. And then years into the future, it is, you know, gloriously and cathartically realized in the afterlife. And so maybe that's a nice metaphor for this movie, finding, gradually finding its own immortality. The layers never end with somewhere in time, you know, because people dress up in 1912 clothing, go back to an island that is actually stuck in time, 1912. So they, I think, I really do believe they do time travel. Um, and they relive this movie it's just layer upon layer upon layer. I I have to wonder, you, you quoted in your article Roger Ebert's review. You said he could only shrug and ask, isn't it a little futile to travel 68 years backward in time for a one-night stand? He wrote that in 1980. Uh, he was considerably more cranky in 1980. Yeah. I think he was probably still drinking in 1980. I really wonder if he would have changed his point of view on it before he died, when he's facing mortality when he's found the love of his life, when he's older and more mature and not just a cranky young critic. Yeah, I, I certainly you know, can't speak for Roger Ebert, although it is interesting to look back. I mean, he wrote criticism for so many years, and it is interesting to look back at his early reviews. And Ebert is somebody who I think of as generally a pretty generous critic, and I don't mean that in a... I, I, that's not a slam at all. It's actually, I, I love Ebert, and I think... Right. He tries to watch the movies that the movie maker made as opposed to ones that they should have for made. For sure, for sure. And I think he would err on the side of kindness. And so, but that also makes his outright pans even more savage, perhaps, yeah. than, than, than someone else's would be. And toward the end of his life, or of his, his career, well, his career and his life ended at the same time. They, you know, he kept writing all the way up to the end. But people and other critics especially would often ding Ebert for, you know, thinking that he was too kind or that he had mellowed out a little bit and this is why it was gratifying to hear somewhere in time name checked in avengers endgame i was so glad to hear somewhere in time name dropped because it's like and i hope that it sent you know some small fraction of the ginormous audience for the for the marvel cinematic universe back to somewhere in time like what is that movie because i want to see it maybe (laughs) i don't know I don't think so. The screenwriters told me that they hadn't actually watched the they movie. They hadn't watched it? No. Damn it was it. just, it was in a list of movies about time travel, uh, so they included it. They they're had not no, doing their homework. They, they should watch it. Uh, I, don't know. I don't know how it would have changed Avengers. <laughs> I could see it changing Guardians of the Galaxy, because that had such a, a much sweeter heart to it. It's true. It's true. Totally see a reference yes. in there. Where would you time travel if you could time travel? Oh, God. Justin Chang. Would you time travel? And, and forget about the paradox. That's that's BS. Whatever. Sure. Oh, the whole... Yeah, if, mean, if we're inventing a time machine, we are also inventing one that won't create some horrible paradox. Unless you want a paradox, like World War II not having happened. That's okay. Oh, God. Because I'd, just... go, I'd, I'd go back and I'd kill Stalin and yeah. I'd kill Hitler. Mao, too, while you're at it. Okay. All right. <laughs> you got Mao. You can t- <laughs> Um, I would time travel to, uh, no, no, no. Um, How about the set of Citizen Kane as it's being shot? Oh, God. If we're on the subject of Wells, I maybe would go back and, 
you know, stop them from butchering The Magnificent Ambersons, hmm. uh, his next film after that one. The Magnificent Ambersons brings you many of the Mercury players you first saw in Citizen Kane. It brings you Orson Welles as commentator, director, and producer of a truly distinguished and exciting motion picture. And I'd, I'd like to get personal and tell me if this is too personal, but we are talking about loss and, and love and, and romance and all these things. And toward the end of your variety piece, you say, take it from me, if you've lost a loved one to long-term illness, it touches about five chords. And you were, you were talking there about, about time, but I assume it pervades all your movie watching. And Yeah, I was talking actually when I wrote that. Um, that I wrote that piece two years after my dad died of cancer. Mm. And that was about you know, 10 I, years ago for you. Yeah, when nine did, years my, my dad, when I lost my dad, yeah. And, and were you close with him? Yeah. When was the last time you reached for the phone? Oh, gosh. It's kind of... <laughs> I mean, it's weird now, too, with phones being what they are. My mom is happily still still with us. And for a while, sometimes when I would... We would still use, like, my dad's phone number because right. he had it for a while as, like, for, like, to FaceTime. And it was so... It would be almost like sometimes I'd be, like, on my laptop and calling my dad. Is it painful? Is it good? Is it bad? Sometimes, you know, people lose their parents or they lose somebody very quickly and 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 suddenly and sometimes you lose them over time and with my dad it was the latter and I know it was more painful for him I always feel a little bit grateful and, and sort of guilty maybe in retrospect because I got to say goodbye to him over a period how long it was over a roughly two three year period I would okay. say since when he was first diagnosed yeah. two years so no because mine, mine yeah. passed really quickly my mom yeah. uh, went pretty quickly and then eight months later my dad died and oh. there was like a a month from diagnosis to his death, in a way, great. Yeah. He suffered very little, as far as I know. Yeah. And so that's great. But it would yeah. have been nice to process this a little bit to more. To process it, yeah. And then, you know, it's weird because I know my dad, you know, suffered more than he, than I would have wanted him to. But it was also good to have that time. And then by the time he did go, of course, there a certain relief sets in yeah. and, and then you feel you feel guilty it's like is that is the should i feel guilty for feeling relief as well as as well no. as sadness and you know all of which to say i feel that um it was hard and yet coping was not impossible surrounded by loving family and friends i was yeah. you know and i was you know i'm praying a lot and being finding comfort in that so it's like it's interesting now to talk about this too because my dad he really did help my love of movies you know he helped me with that and so it was very i don't know if you ever saw somewhere in time it's kind of funny i think i've mentioned it to him and he would have said like oh yeah i remember that. i know that movie but he really was sort of foundational in a lot of ways to just encouraging me to to love film and to even loving some you know classic hollywood movies so that was something we shared that was something we bonded over i don't want to get too woo woo and if this is too woo woo for you <laughs> well, but it's fine but you know my dad my dad did a lot of radio yeah. He did photography, which I do. And he, yeah. there's a, you know, my studio, which we're not in right now, has tons and tons of archival tape from him in his days at the University of Detroit and Lake Superior State College and all the stuff he did. And that's really nice. You know, there's that quote from Paul Oster that mm-hmm. goes, um, reach a certain moment in your life and you realize that your days are spent more with the dead than with yeah. the living. I would add, and I'm okay with that. I enjoy it. I, it's, it's, either, it's either you stop thinking about them Stop enjoying the memories, or you enjoy the memories yeah. and let them be a part of your life. And I think as long as you don't behave delusionally about it, it's okay. There's this quote, and I'm going to maybe butcher it, but from a favorite author of mine, P.D. James. I mostly had to commit it to memory, but 
she said, and I thought I was thinking about this a lot in the years after my dad's death. It's like she said something like, the tragedy is not that we grieve, but that we cease to grieve. And then maybe the dead are truly dead to us at last or something, you know, and I, that's not an exact quote. Yeah. Um, and it's funny because now in, in more recent years, I don't know if I even completely agree with it, although it does still resonate with me because grief does sort of become less acute. And as you say, you become more yep. exactly what you were saying. And, and it's, you're right. It's this weird, there's actually something very comforting about getting used to grief to the point where grief, it's not that it ceases to be grief, but it does become something in addition to grief, maybe. Yeah. And it's weird sometimes when, I don't know, I don't know if I dream about my dad that much anymore. There was a time, sometimes you'll just, you'll, you'll, maybe, the, I don't know if this is true for you, just pop up in your in your dreams sometimes, and it's kind of, and you suddenly are pulled back. And this is very, very appropriate to time travel, because it completely screws with your sense of, you know, it's like, oh, it's like you've spent nine years making peace with this, and then suddenly it's like, it's like nothing's changed, and he's still alive. And then you wake up, crying or something and this has happened to me and um it, it's very much like time travel um and then and then sometimes it's just it's okay because you know he's there and it's like oh hi it's and it's it's nice and those you just see them as gifts it's like oh yeah he actually and it is almost this thing he actually really this does get kind of cliche or trite perhaps but no it's like you know in a sense he really is alive in that way yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i um there was a point it was probably 1998 1999 uh, I reached for the phone to call my parents, uh-huh. and I stopped myself in the <laughs> middle of it, and I said, "Wait a minute, they're gone, and you're, you, but in your head, they're alive still." So I, so I told myself to savor the moment. Yeah. It was a really nice moment of of consciousness, where I, I, I really did savor it. I'm like, "Well, this is nice. Mm. They're alive. Okay." And, and I knew, I knew exactly what I was doing and and what was playing out, but it was really comforting to me. Um, my, I'm, I'm glad that you dream about your dad and that he visits you. My issue is that I, 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 my dad comes to me in, in dreams too, but never my mom. And I have a really hard time remembering my mother. Um, and part of it is that, that I'm 54. They died in 1991 and 92 when I was like 25. So I've now lived more than half my life without them. She was great, but she wasn't as forceful a personality. And I'm much more like my father. And I have recordings of my father, and uh, there are more pictures of my father. And so I remember him very strongly, and I knew him better. I guess I would say that I just knew him a lot better, in part because he's a lot like me, but also just because he's, you know, he was, a, he was a big character. And my mom, not so much. There's no recordings. There are no voice recordings that I can find of my mom. There might be video someplace, but I don't think she's talking on it. And what I wish is that I could go back in time and not be a callow 25-year-old who was all about getting laid and living my own life and doing my own thing, which is what you generally do when you're 25. That's that's generally, I think, why your parents die when you're 50 or 70 or whatever, (laughs) so that so that you can maybe get to know them as adults. And that's what I would like, is to get to know them as adults, ask them a bunch of questions that I, that I don't have answers to. Thank you for listening to my sermon. No, no, it's, it's, it's true. And my dad was 71, which, you know, it's... That sucks. It's not a, the shortest life, but it's not the longest either. Uh, it's right in the middle, sort of. Maybe to answer your question, I, <laughs> I'd be curious, because I, you know, I think about this as a parent now, too. You know, I have a, oh. I have a three-year-old, soon to be four this month, I find myself thinking more about who my parents were before. And, you know, I can, you know, I call my mom. I ask her. I, I certainly have access. I, my mom 
still being with us, I have access to a lot of those memories still. But I think this is just, you know, that universal condition of never being able to fully know who your parents were before they were parents and knowing that they were wholly, you know, their own. And maybe if, you know, if, if you have parents who are, you know, as a lot of parents do live more for themselves than for you or, or who were, you know, who, or who you, they weren't a part of your lives. You know, my parents were, you know, very self-sacrificing and, you know, we, we did at least at the very least we felt like we were their lives, you know? And so, and now it's just interesting as a parent to think about that. And whenever, especially when, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, like a lot of writers, like a lot of people, it's like, I'm very selfish with my time. And so it's, you know, and whenever I find myself not, you know, Am I being neglectful to my child? Am I not spending enough time with her? It's like I think about that and I think about what would my parents have done. What did my parents do? This is something I do think about a lot. And No, it stretches it, you. Yeah. yeah. It totally yeah. stretches your brain. Yeah. And it, I, and it I, like rips, it rips, <laughs> it rips everything <laughs> apart, right? Because it, it totally does. screws up your life. It so does. everything that was comfortable before is now difficult. It totally does. And then it pours stimulant on your head, with your brain, which has been <laughs> opened up. It, it does all those things, and I want to hasten to add because this was something that a conversation that happened. I am in no way trying to ennoble or exalt the state of parenthood. There was this. Oh, good for you. I don't know if you noticed this, John. Like there was this silly thing on Twitter where somebody said it's a privilege to not have children, and it ignited this whole reaction. And this is the whole very, very much. It really actually rankles me as this idea that like you're not fully fulfilled unless you're, unless you're a parent, which I think is ridiculous. So I want to hasten to add that Thank you. you're still yourself, but it, it becomes harder to hold on to a lot of those things that you were before you, you know. Sorry? Oh, no, but thank you very much. Thank you. Have a good one. Sure. Thank you. A man passed by and asked if we wanted some food. And That's very that nice. Very nice, yeah. Uh, oh, and the other thing is, by the way, when your parents die, after that you can handle anything. You can handle raising a four-year-old and not having, not sleeping. The, like the worst thing that could happen to you yeah. has already happened. Yeah. Well, and sometimes it, this is extremely morbid. You might want to cut this, but it's oh. like just thinking about thinking about now. It's just a race to make sure that you know your child survives and that you're, you make sh- make sure that you, your child outlives you. And then, so in a way, you know, it's not that you welcome death, but it's like even that wouldn't be the worst thing, you know. Huh. As long as your kid's taken care of. As long as you die before your child, that is, you know, that is the goal now. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me, John. That's Justin Chang, film critic for Fresh Air with Terry Gross and the Los Angeles Times. And, you know, I had probably spoken half an hour at most with Justin in little five-minute increments over the last, I don't know, five years or so at uh, the radio station I work at in Los Angeles at KPCC when he stopped in to be on the Film Week show. So, you know, we knew each other a little and liked each other a little. And I just want to thank you, Justin, for opening your heart, opening your mind to me so much uh, and trusting me with what for a lot of people is a very sensitive topic. So that was very cool. Thank you very much. Uh, You, in fact have helped to define what this show is, so I really appreciate it. Call Back Yesterday is produced, written, recorded, and directed by John Raby, that's me, with additional sound recording by Ava Sahoyan. Our theme music is performed by The Van Dyke Parks, and our logo was made by Michael Ulencott. Additional support from Bermuda's Projects in Los Angeles. Join me soon for the next episode of Call Back Yesterday. Thank you for listening.